never know where life is going to take you. Some people know exactly where they want to be and go for it full throttle. Others just stumble upon it organically, and then there are those who just follow their intuition. This is a podcast about reaching your personal best through resilience, motivation, and passion. This is Mark My Words. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Mark My Words. And this week, I have a really great guest that I'm really excited about, and she has a really inspiring story. She has an extremely interesting career path. And at this point, as far as her entrepreneurial uh, endeavors go, she is a harmonizing habits health and life coach, sexual assault and leadership public speaker. And she is the co-owner of Vintage Veterans LLC Jillian Weber is a veteran of the U.S. Army, and I am very proud to have you on my show today, Jillian. Welcome to Mark My Words. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Oh, no problem. And thank you for being early. It was amazing. I got home from my day job, and I saw the Zoom email pop up. And sometimes people pop on and then they pop off. They realize they're early or something else is going on. But you were like early for real. So (laughs) I was like, oh, man, I can like get 10, 15 minutes ahead. Like we're in sync with each other. So I was not that I require early for all my guests. But the fact that you were, I'm like, oh, I'm taking advantage of this. So that's the military side of me. So. And like I told you before we started, I sometimes I wonder if I myself chose the wrong path because I did not take a military path, but I've always had that mindset of like being early. I've always been very organized and have always had kind of those, uh, I think, characteristics. But um, I know way back when not to get to TMI on my life, but uh, I know that with the syndrome I was born with, and I have like a particular, I always say the package that I was born with included obviously the cleft palate and lip and some other things, but it also included a very tricky like bowel issue for me to manage. So I was always discouraged from uh, doing that just because I didn't want to wind up in a war and be like, hold on, everybody. Hold <laughs> on a sec. You know, I time out. I guess you can't do that. So uh, that's probably why I never chose that path. That's a lot of TMI. But uh, we're well, not- if, it makes you, if it makes you feel better about probably 70% of the veterans that I know have that bowel issue. <laughs> so Really? Yeah. Trust me, the army food does not help us. And then everything else that we get, you know, experience and be around 
does not help our bodies whatsoever. So by the time we get out, we're, we're broken. We're, you know, having bowel problems. It's, it's crazy. Wow. And I, I guess I would have fit right in all along. See, probably. see what uh, you learn or don't learn when you're kind of like held back or I guess based on your history, I feel like nothing's held you back, but, uh, I mean, here we are, and uh, I am very excited to have you on, and I promise I will not talk about TMI and bowel stuff the whole time. <laughs> no problem. So, I really wanted to uh, just kind of, first of all, mm-hmm. uh, talk about, because this is about career transition, and definitely want to touch on entrepreneurship, and really want to go into like your history because I'm almost kind of living through you. I almost feel like I'm living through everybody I have on, but that whole army experience, like I really want to, you know, live through you and learn. Like I've already learned a lot just from what you told me. So (laughs) I would have been in, but uh, just from looking at your LinkedIn profile, I, first of all, noticed that you had quite a few golf-related jobs, and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, I, I see it, when you're like, yeah, you know, matter of fact, I did, <laughs> and, uh, it was a long time ago, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was just curious, because one job, maybe for the summer or something, and then you move on, mm-hmm. okay, but you had, like, three of them, how did that, come uh, about for you? Well, I actually got my first job on the day I turned 16. I was very dedicated to getting a job and working. It was instilled in me since a very young age. And so I got a job at a golf range and shop and um, I mostly help, you know, sell goods and do floor stuff. And then I moved. So I ended up, as soon as I moved, I was on the golf team at my new, um, in my new high school. And so I had to get, you know, to know where the ranges were and everything like that. And I ended up at a range and I, you know, they happened to be looking for, um, another worker and they saw that I'd had the, the previous one and, and I had such a good relationship with, uh, the owner of, of the first place that I worked. And so he gave me these raving reviews and I got the job and it started off with, me working in the shop and selling golf balls and the other stuff and managing the range and stuff like that, uh, from a sales perspective. And even though I was, you know, full-time high school and sports and everything like that, I just, I was like, I need more. So I started working on the range, which was like a separate portion of the shop where in the mornings before school, I would go out and help them pick up all the the balls from the day before, get them all cleaned up, put them back in the shop. And then I'd go to school and then I'd come back and I'd work in the shop. Um, And then I was really close with my bosses. So I ended up, um, they actually built clubs. And so I ended up helping them build clubs as as another job. So I had a very full schedule uh, as a high schooler. But it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's kind of what drove me to the military was um, as, as seven, 16, 17, 
and um, well, 16, 17 year old, I worked harder than all of the adults. I worked harder than everybody around me. Um, it got to a point where they would let me open. I could open. They didn't want me closing by myself because I was so young. And um, while I was there, we actually got robbed once. So, um, but I did all like all the heavy work and, and, and all that. And there was only one other guy who worked about as hard as I did. And he was this old, I love him to death. This old crusty Marine, <laughs> a retired Marine. And um, Leon was his name. And I loved him to death because he had a similar mindset to me, but I was getting paid um, just minimum wage. And for all the extra work that I was doing, it was infuriating for me because I, they also had me handling the payroll. And so I saw everybody else's paychecks and, you know, this, like one guy was 23 years old, but he wasn't doing anything. He'd, he would sit in the shop and watch TV all the time. And it, it just absolutely infuriated me. And then they ended up hiring this guy that wasn't even, he wanted to become a golf pro, but it wasn't really even this big golf guy. And he, they met him at a bar. He's a bartender and they brought him on and they ended up paying him. It, I was at minimum wage at like five something. And oh, by the way, because I was in high school, I wasn't supposed to be working overtime with, in, unless they paid me time and a half. That was like a special thing. If I worked anything over, um, I think while you're, while you're in school, it's like anything over 20 or 30 hours. And I was working way past that. So they'd bump my hours to the next month thing. And I, I just let him do it. I was young, didn't know any better. And then this guy comes on board and they're paying him something like 12 bucks an hour or something way above what I was getting. I was furious. And I basically said, give me a raise or I'm out of here. And they, they said no. And so I said, well, screw you because there's this guy who's been hunting me down at school consistently. He's called a recruiter. <laughs> I went to, I went to a couple of different services. I went to the Navy first. Um, I wanted to be a pilot and the process that they wanted you to go through as to be a pilot was ridiculous. Like you had to have all these people sign off on your approval to become part of their program, but they're people who didn't know me. So like congressmen who have no idea who you are are supposed to sign off on your thing. I'm like, doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so I went to the army recruiter who had been, like I said, he, he was a stalker dude. He was tracking me down. He must've known, he knew I had, um, you know, that military lifestyle in me. And I went over to him and one of the things I'll tell you about the army that made it so nice is the army was the only organization that let me choose a job, not a job field, but an actual specific job that they would um, promise me. All the other uh, Marines, Navy, Air Force, you can choose a field. So if you choose like the medical field, you could be a medical records filer and you thought you were going to be this cool, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> nurse or something. Um, so that the army, uh, was what offered me that, and I went and got tested and they came up to like, apparently I was a very high score on their, their testing, uh, level for that area. And they're like, oh, you need to be intelligence. And they sold me that I was going to be James Bond. Now <laughs> I never ended up reaching that, but they did sell me as a, as a young uh, tomboy high schooler all about it uh, that I was gonna meet James Bond but that's impressive I mean 
did you have an idea? I know the recruiter was uh, kind of uh, trying to, well, recruit you. And uh, <laughs> in that time of your life, did going to college ever cross your mind or were you all about just, nope, that's not for me. I need to uh, take a, just a different path. It's funny you say that. I actually had a full ride scholarship to an art college. Oh, wow. Um, but for me and the way I looked at it, because my bosses and, and their answer to me for not giving me a raise was simply this. You're a high schooler and he's got a family. So even though he would just sit and watch TV all day and I was doing all the work, he had a family. So he deserved more than I did. And I said, yes, but I'm about to go to college. And said they, because I talked to them so often there in the U.S. full ride, but I didn't want to live with my parents and not that I don't like my parents. I love my parents to death, but my parents, my parents got married and took on my dad's four children almost about a year after they got married. And they also had, um, the brother that came before me, my full blood brother. And so they didn't have much of a time with just each other. And then, um, I came around, uh, five years after my brother. And so I just looked at it as like, I'm 18 years old. You know, my brother at this point is, is 23. My parents literally have not had time to themselves for 23 years. I don't want to live with them. Like I, they, they need time to do whatever, you know, run around naked, you know, do what <laughs> old people do, you know, like, and, um, that was very thoughtful of you. Yeah. I just, I, and they never, ever put that on me. In fact, when I told them years later that that's why, cause they looked at it as like, I can't believe she just ran away. Cause all my siblings, except for one, they had all stayed in the house for a while. And so when I, I literally had to get their permission to join the military because I was still 17. So they didn't understand. They're like, oh, this is just a phase. You know, they, they thought I, you know, I just got a bug up my butt, but that it wasn't going to go through. And then I was like, no, I'm, I'm serious. I need you to sign this. I'm leaving. I want to go to the military after this. And my dad was in the Navy. Uh, I had a brother that was in the Navy, a brother that was in the Marine and another brother that was in the National Guard. So we had a lot of military in the family which I think is part of what, you know, kind of raised me to be the way I was. So, um, but I did, and I had the full ride scholarship. And, you know, the other thing was, is I wanted to live closer to the school. The school was about 45 minutes away and even dorms and all that kind of stuff. That's expensive. And the job I had was actually from the school would have been an hour and a half away. So for me to keep that job, they were going to have to pay me enough to make that trip worthwhile. You know what I mean? So it was just, it was, it was, that part was frustrating, but it just, I think the other thing too, that made me a little afraid about the school was I really loved art. Um, I still do to this day. And I was kind of afraid to make it a job because I felt like if I made it a job, I wouldn't like it anymore. I would lose my lose my love for it you know let me let me step in with that because i have been passionate about working in media and Mm -hmm. you know i was that kid that always wanted to buy the tv guide and look through it and i would take my 
old black and white TVs apart. Like I had a real passion for media, TV, mm-hmm. film, especially radio. Um, I had a very big fear around that same time in mm-hmm. my life that you're talking about. I was like, I really feel a lot of passion. I really feel like I want to do this. But I was afraid that if I got into it, it wouldn't be the same. I would learn too much. And I wouldn't yeah. have the same passion. And I'm glad that you said that because that's something I've never talked about really with anybody. And I eventually, I guess my life story kind of got off track because I had people telling me, well, why don't you just get a business degree? Why are you doing that? That's stupid. So that played into it and it messed with my head. And eventually I just, after working in factories and doing some other stuff, I said, you know what? It can't be less fun than what I'm doing now if I just go for it. And if I, if it somehow ruins my passion or love for whatever, then it does. And I mean, I can understand where you're coming from because yeah. I, I think in some ways it definitely has kind of tarnished it a little bit. I think mm-hmm. some of the magic of uh, the media and TV and just production industry in that part of the world. I mean, yeah, it's definitely kind of taking some of that magic away because I'll sit and I'll watch a show with somebody and I'll be like, oh, you see that background? That's totally fake. Yeah. Not on location. Yep. And it's like, oh, thanks a lot, you ruiner. So <laughs> um, my husband has that problem because he did some, he did media school before he joined the military as well. Yeah. And he's like, there's certain things like with movies that it ruins it, especially when they have mistakes or like when, you know, like sometimes they'll have the little floating microphone, the cat in the car, they didn't catch or things like that. And he'll be like, Oh, see that. And I'm like, would you stop? Like, I just want to watch the movie. Just stop. <laughs> so, well, well, I got paid for many years to find stuff like that and have people fix it, which is a really cool job. But again, yeah. it kind of like takes the magic away from it. I think yeah. the only job I've ever had that hasn't necessarily ruined the magic of the art might actually be my current job. Like I've been able to separate the two. So yeah. it's, it's like the only time that I can think of where that hasn't really factored in. But I'm going to well, let you continue. Real quick though, you made a good point is you were yeah. able to separate it. Yeah. And I've only recently learned because I've been kind of, obsessive about things that I get into. So I got really obsessive about the military. I was really obsessive about my golf jobs. Like I told you, I was working so many hours as a child, you know? Um, and that's what would happen with my art. And I knew I was going to do that. Now I've started doing a lot of my art again. I actually sold a painting, which like blew my mind, but it's one of those things where I only just now realized how to separate that. So the fact that you found a way to separate that is actually really awesome because it does allow you to have that passion and not, you know, lose it and not take away the magic. So I, I must have learned that 
at uh, my last actual corporate job. I mean, I've had corporate jobs since then, but I've been mm -hmm. contracting. And I know in that environment, I worked with a lot of people who were really, really passionate about movies mm -hmm. and just movie making and all that kind of stuff. And I think that seeing things through their eyes really kind of helped me to uh, learn to separate and learn okay. to be like, okay, I'm going to appreciate the art and I'm going to appreciate the storytelling, but I'm also going to be able to separate that from the technical. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was done without me really, I thought that was something I've only learned over the past few years, but yeah. I, the more I think about it, the more I think that's probably where I learned it from. But uh, I digress. I'll uh, let you get back to uh, your story and how uh, you wound up in the Army. Yeah, so there I was in the Army. Um, being a tomboy, like, it wasn't that difficult for me. I fit in really quickly. Um, I kind of, at the time, so I joined in 2000, and at the time I joined, I didn't fit in with my peers, though. That was the thing. So my peers were the, the typical young private um what's what's that cartoon where it's got the private and the um sarge you know anywhere the privates are always doing you know dumb things and i wasn't like that i was always like you know most of the i don't want to say kids but basically the soldiers and kids my age were out you know like on the weekends or getting drunk and doing this i i jumped on all the leadership opportunities i always um you know, rose my hand there and they tell you basic training, whatever you do, don't volunteer, man, I volunteered for everything. Um, you know, and I had a, a great time and it was amazing. And I, I went from, uh, basic training to, then I had to go to my training for the Intel work that I was going to do. And, uh, had some struggles there again, being just kind of this natural leader and my peers absolutely hating me for it. Like they just, absolutely hated me for it. But my NCOs, my sergeants that were in charge of me, all my leadership, they saw in me what I could be. And they, they pushed me and they, they did some things that were really out of the norm for how they normally operated from the drills runs to everything. They like, I did things that just to me made sense. Like before we went to class while well, we're waiting, cause some, sometimes you have to wait like up to a month to go to class. All they do all day long is make you do chores. And I mean, it's the dumb stuff. Like you have to rake the rocks so that they can suntan on the other side and, you know, <laughs> pick up pine cones in a bag in which the drill sergeants would keep the bags and throw the pine cones back out the next day, you know? And you um, love doing that? Uh, it wasn't so much that I loved that. What I saw was I immediately saw a misuse of time. And so we had all these, these soldiers and, and they had put this one guy in charge who was about to get chaptered for medical reasons. I was really, he was an older guy. He came in uh, older than most of us and he was about to leave and he needed a replacement. And so he started kind of taking me on because he saw I was, you know, into leadership. And um, I remember I, I said, because what would happen is you, there was only so many chores you could do like in the area, you know, and then eventually there would always be one soldier 
who wasn't doing what they're supposed to do. And what happens? The drill sergeant always pops out of freaking nowhere, the smoke bomb. And it's like, what are you doing, soldier? All oh, and then bring all of us out. And they do what they call smoking, which is the push-ups and the sit-ups and the flutter kicks. And we're having this mass punishment and you're all getting beat up. And it made no sense to me. And I was like, why? Like, we've got nothing. Like, you've literally left nothing for us to do. So what I did is I, I just took a list. I said, this is everything that has to get done. Okay. And I would get up from the drill sergeant that morning. I said, okay, what is everything that needs to get done? Oh, bam. Okay. We have these 20 things. There's like 10 of us doing it. And I said, okay. So I, I did a board and I had it behind where I, I would sit and do my work. And I would put the name of the person that was doing the task. And once they got done, I promised them, depending on how long the task was or how hard the task was, I promised them a break. And so I, I didn't tell the drill sergeants I was doing this. I didn't realize that I need to. And so one day they catch somebody on break and they come in and they're screaming, yelling, and they're about to pull us all out. I was like, drill sergeant, wait, 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 wait. And they're like, what is, what, what is it? Get out there. And I was like, just wait. I put him on break. And he goes, excuse me? Like, how dare you think you have the authority to do that? I said, look, look what I did. And because I had everything timed out and perfect, like I put to this, like the minute that they got finished with the task. And he's like, what? Well, then how long did they have left? And, you know, I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, they have literally one minute and 30 seconds left, drill sergeant, you know? And he's looking at me, he's like, who taught you to do these things? And I was like, I just kind of felt like it made sense, doesn't it? And he's like, I've never had a soldier do this. So obviously it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not common sense. And I was like. I think you just had a very (laughs) natural uh, leadership ability. I mean, other than like being so natural with everything, do you have any idea where these skills might have come from for you? Honestly, I, most of them, I think came from my parents, my mother, uh, about when I was born, she started working for, uh, as well for the humane society. And then she became the director of the humane society where we lived and my entire youth, uh, she'd work at the humane society. She'd build it back up from whatever problems that I was having. And then five years about ran about five years later, we'd move to another humane society and uh, her discipline at work, she was, uh, she was a typical workaholic, like to, to the T what a workaholic was, but she had a mission that she really believed in, you know, and that was really helping the animals and stuff. And my dad, um, he was actually the one that had the big job when they got married. But when she found this job, he kind of, he's, like a jack of all trades, master of none kind of guy. And so he could just pick up a job anywhere and he would just do it. But he was always the one that was there for all my sports and all that stuff, because he knew my mom was taking on that other role. And so I picked up a little bit from both of them. And I won't say I had a rigid family, uh, even though he was military prior, it wasn't a rigid, like, you know, I wasn't talking to my parents with my hands behind my back or anything like that, but and, and I'll also put this out. My dad was 45 when he had me. So he was much older. He was from a different generation. And I, I just feel like all of that growing up 
just got sucked into me and, and, and put me on the path of, of where I am. So, but it really did cause some problems growing up because I didn't do what all the other kids did. Like I didn't, right. I never was interested in drinking. You know, my parents were always like, Hey, you want to go, you know, want to sit by wine, whatever. I want to sit my beer. I'm good. You know, um, I never was trying to do anything crazy. The worst stuff I did is I would go out at two o'clock in the morning, um, in the summers and I would play basketball with a group of guys that live behind me. And I would come back bleeding from oh boy everywhere because we played so rough, you know, like that was, that was what I did, you know, saying so they never had to worry about me. Um, so I, it really like the military just fit in. Like I just fit in. But you know, some of the most amazing people I've ever met have been people who kind of marched to the beat of their own drum. They weren't necessarily fixing on fitting in or being a part of the crowd. And I'm certainly not here to say that I'm one of these really amazing people that I know, but I will say that I was kind of similar where I didn't really go out and party, even though I was going to college and certainly not following a path of such discipline like uh, you were following and I mean I was always just a little bit more like in tune with other goals and things that interested me rather than trying to like impress others and as I'm listening to you talk and I'm listening to you tell me where you think you picked up your traits frankly I, I have no idea where I picked up mine I'm just I, I think a lot of it for me was just I didn't fit in, yeah. whether it was at home or, you know, at school. Mm-hmm. didn't really quite fit in. So I just kind of like did my own thing and carved my own path yeah. and found my own discipline. I'm, I'm sure that some of the discipline and the work ethic I have, it had to have come from my parents. I mean, my mom used to wake me up at five in the morning. Like she used to go to those teacher uh, stores and she would buy English like workbooks that teachers would buy. And she would make me get up at like five in the morning and go over all these lessons. But it wasn't going to make me a hard worker. It was so because I was born with cleft lip and palate she didn't want people to think that I was stupid. Oh, okay. And, you know, she didn't, because I already had some of the speech issues. She didn't want people to perceive me a certain way. Right. She wanted people to perceive me with having intelligence. But I think by accident, it turned me into a hard worker. Although yeah. I, I hate getting up even now at three in the morning, I get up for work and it's way too early. I would much rather sleep in. So who knows how I would have done with that. Well, I will tell you the wake up part. I still, I never got used to that part. I never, never got used to that. I love my sleep and I love sleeping in. And so that was probably one of the most difficult things about the military for me was the sleeping in part. So I understand. I can only imagine. I mean, I guess if I, somebody lights a fire under me, 
I'll get up. And if I have a drill sergeant yelling in my ear to get up, I'll get up. But I mean, man, that, that's gotta be hard. So. I mean, yeah. It's for, for me, it was always, it was always fear-based because I, I never wanted to be in trouble ever. I've right. always had a theory that in, in my belief system was always, if I could learn from somebody else, I much rather do that than have to learn a lesson myself. So I would always see these people late to formation or whatever and, and getting in trouble. And I was like, anytime I got called into the leadership's office, 90% of the time, because me, it was me, like it was a good thing, but I was always scared crapless. I was like, Oh, what, what did I do? Was my shoelace untied? Uh, did I not, you know, iron my, my uniform? Oh God, you know, like, and I would just always freak out. So that was, that was actually what that fire you're talking about. That's what got me up was that it was purely 100%, um, just fear. I, I, I feared everything in the military. Um, so. Wow. That, that is intense. I, I think that's where that being life for me kind of, starts trailing off in a direct direction. <laughs> but I'm saying this at the point I'm at in my life now. Who knows how I would have felt 20 years ago. There's but. a certain amount, you know, it's very much like you can take the girl out of the military, but you can't take the military out of the girl. Like you get, right. there's literally a certain amount of brainwashing that you just get. Um, but, you know, t- uh, you said something about not really caring what people thought and, and, you know, walk in my own drum. And, and I did that all the way through high school, but for some reason, when I joined the military and especially when I started becoming a leader and getting up front, that was a very hard transition for me because I didn't necessarily fit in, in a lot of people's minds with the older crowd. A lot of the older crowd were mad that I was moving up so fast. And then the, the younger crowd I was now in charge of and I couldn't be around. And so I didn't fit anywhere. And it was about that point. I mean, I would always, and a lot of this is just being raised with four boys and being, um, uh, <laughs> given, I won't say given, but, um, being around things I probably shouldn't have been at around <laughs> at a young age and seeing things, you know, from, you know, porn magazine and stuff like that so there's a certain kind of walk the walk talk the talk of of the typical guy you know that um I fell into when I joined the military I felt like okay well this is how I can fit in right so I I would talk inappropriately um especially for a workplace um you know that whether it's it can be anything from a your mom joke to you know all that kind of stuff which everybody finds funny until they really realize how traumatic that can be. And that actually um, kind of leads into my, my sexual soul and, and the lesson that I had to learn on my own and not through other people. And it was all because I was just trying to fit in, honestly. I didn't find out about years later, but, uh, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but um, I, as soon as I got to probably my first duty station, I just kept trying to fit in with other people because I was so lonely in the military. It was the first time, um, my first duty station was in Korea. I got sent overseas. 
I really, from my schooling, didn't know anything about Korea. I forgot that it was a country. You know, I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, where am I going? What are you doing to me? Um, so it was very, it was a very scary time for me. And so what I did is I just, I tried to fit in with the guys because the girls did not like me at all. So I tried to fit in with the guys and I did so by how I talked. I talked a huge, huge amount and I had not experienced anything that I really had talked about. And it, it kind of led me into some, some devastating future events. So. And I, you know, just want to know about why uh, women might not have been like so favorable towards you. I think you're extremely confident. Just you know, you're you're you carry yourself so well, and I think sometimes that's something that I think women sometimes can struggle with is just having that ultimate like confidence like you just seem so self-assured and this isn't me trying to talk down on women or anything it's no. not because I could get myself down a real bad rabbit hole with that but I I think that you have this like confidence in yourself that like I I just don't feel like I always see and mm -hmm. maybe it's not even confidence it's Something else, like, I don't know if you've ever kind of tried to pinpoint that, but. Um, so first of all, I'll say that just in general, I will tell you military females are absolutely horrible to each other. It is, it is nothing but a, a competition, um, all the time. It, it just doesn't stop. Um, one, you know, one moment you think somebody is your friend, the next minute they're stabbing you in the back, you know? whether it's about rank and, 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 you know, getting promoted or whether it's uh, in Korea, the big one was it was nine guys to every one female for um, us people. So as you can assume, like females, they're typically live like Queens. Um, and they had this, like, you know, like this is my turf kind of attitude on stuff. And um, I remember I dated a guy that we went on like two dates and realized that, no, man, we're just, we're better as friends. It didn't work out. Uh, we were great friends, but, um, we decided really quickly that that's all it was going to be. This girl shows up a couple months after that. And we're still friends. And she starts dating him immediately. She just like, she stepped on ground, she starts dating him within five minutes. And that's fine. You know, like they seem to, you know, hit it off really well, but then she found out, well, she didn't like me as his friend in the first place, but then she found out that we had dated and that was it. This girl was like 100% target locked on me, anything and everything she could do. And I'm, I'm telling you, Mark, this lasted over 10 years. Actually, no, I'm sorry. Uh, 15 years. Every time I ran into this girl, if I ever saw her at a duty station, the minute I saw her, rumors would fly. Oh, look at that slut over here. Oh, she's got STD. She's got this. She's blah, blah, blah. And she'd just go right into it. And oh, it got so bad that, now don't get me wrong, I knew if, if it came to a fist fight, I'd beat her ass. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> that wasn't a problem. But 
this this girl like I saw her walking down the street at not my last job but the job prior to that in Arizona she I guess had gotten PCS there and I saw her walking down the street and I was in the car with my husband and I just looked and I took a double shit take and I was like you know and I just screamed and my husband's like what's going on what's wrong and the window was open she heard me and she turned around she didn't see me but I was like not her not her not again not again I can't do this again because she, like, I was in a peaceful time in my life and she always got everything always riled up and focused around me. And I just gone through some bad stuff and I got over it and I'm like, no, I can't do this again. I can't have, and that's how bad it was. And she's not the only one Mark, like the military females were absolutely horrible to each other. And I will note that I've seen it on the civilian side too, where we don't support each other. And you can see it whether you're looking in media. Uh, if you look at the movies, females are always competing and you talk about music, like um, from rap to Taylor Swift, it's always like, uh, you know, attack, girls attacking girls and, and they're, we don't support each other. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, so it's just like the civilian world. Mm-hmm. So. Very much so. Yeah. And for me, um, for me, it was, it, it was the content, it was the leadership, it was the confidence, but honestly, a lot of it, Mark was just because I was friends with all the guys. I was in all the guys groups. They accepted me as one of them and the females hated it. They absolutely hated it. They hated that the guys trusted me. They hated it that the guys would talk to me about things that they wouldn't talk to them with all of that. It, like it, it, they couldn't stand it. And so I just became this target um, from all these females that I couldn't run away from. I mean, it, it, no matter what I did, it wasn't right for them. Um, I, I, I did a lot of things to help a lot of them. Um, I've talked some of them down from suicide. Um, I've brought some of them home completely drunk and trashed and made sure that they were safe. And, you know, when I found them in a club and made sure they didn't get assaulted, all that kind of stuff. And it was all forgotten the next day. And despite that, it were, it was experiences like that as well as some of the other stuff you went through that kind of helped you to generate the idea for, I guess, the next phase of your life. And uh, you can kind of go into that and talk about how that actually materialized. I guess I'm assuming a little bit, but... uh, No, yeah. And and like I said, I kind of jumped a little bit ahead before. Sorry, my cat really wants out. Um, (laughs) So being pushed more towards the guys and trying to fit in and talking like very kind of sexual, dirty uh, jokes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, what it ended up doing is, and, and I'm just going to give the quick warning here that we're going to start going into how I got into sexual assault and it's from my own uh, little sexual assault experiences. So um, the first sexual assault in the military that I had, um, I was in Korea and my grandfather died. And this is the first death I'd ever had to deal with. And my mom basically said, don't come back because 
by the time you get a plane ticket, by the time you get approval from the military, all that, he's already going to be buried and we're okay. You know, it was kind of expected um, for them. They hadn't really told me that, but so I'm sitting here trying to um, go through the grieving process, but not knowing what the grieving process is. And so I went out and searched and unfortunately it was a party night. I went out and searched for, for friends, knocking on doors, trying to find somebody to talk to. And I didn't find anybody, didn't find anybody. So I ended up spending a good chunk of the night under pavilion, just staring at the stars thinking like, what do I do? Like, I don't know why I'm not crying yet. I don't know. Am I supposed to cry? How do I, you know, like, what do I do? And so it's a couple hours out there. And then finally this guy that I knew had walked by and he was part of my main crowd that I hung out with. Best I could describe him was we're kind of frenemies. Like we didn't hate each other, but we're always kind of like nitpicking at each other. And he saw me, he's like, what you doing out here? You know? And so I told him and he was incredibly compassionate and, you know, under like, I could tell he had been drinking, but he wasn't like, sorry, a speech. He wasn't falling over or anything like that. So I really didn't think, um, anything was wrong. And he said, do you want to come up to my room and we'll talk about it there? So you're not crying for everybody. And I was like, yeah, sure. That's actually great. And so we went up to his room and, and I'd finally busted down crying and I really felt safe and comfortable. And that lasted, I don't know, maybe half hour um, or longer. And then suddenly he started trying to, um, kiss me and, uh, you know, massage and touch and all that kind of stuff. And, um, for me, I couldn't process that. I had this person here that I trusted that was now taking advantage and, and I knew it, you know, internally, I knew he was taking advantage of my situation. And I was like, I'm supposed to be processing my, my grandpa here. And so what my body did is it went into what they call collapsed immobility, which basically means my body just gives up. And I went into a black hole. I don't remember anything. I don't remember feeling anything. I didn't see anything. As far as I could tell, I was asleep. I wasn't drugged. He didn't drug me. I hadn't had anything, you know, he didn't give me food or drink or anything like that. Um, so I just went into this collapsed immobility. And when I woke up, God knows how long it was. I really don't know. Uh, but it was pitch black in the room. His roommate had come back. And when I wanted to go, he wanted me to wait till his roommate fell asleep because he didn't want his roommate knowing I was in the room. And so uh, it took a while, but I finally got out um, and I ran back to my room and I was just so devastated. I just fell asleep crying. But the next morning I found out that um, he had actually, as far as I could tell, it, it wasn't sex, but he had actually bitten all around down there. And so I don't really know the full extent of what happened. Um, but what ended up happening from that is I ended up with a really bad infection. Um, he had actually given me uh, herpes, uh, oral herpes down there. And I had to process all of this 
my grandpa's death out the window. And through all this, I, I called my parents to talk to them a little bit about what I was going through. I didn't give them a lot of details because I didn't want them freaking out. And my roommate was listening. And so what she decided, she had wanted her own room. And so she had decided she worked in the deep act. She decided to tell her entire chain of command that I had STDs and diseases and she couldn't live in there with me in order to keep the food sanitary, which is, if you know anything about STD, it's completely illogical. But um, the military back then did not know much about that. Um, I will tell you the doctors weren't, didn't really help me in any way, shape or form. And so it went up her chain of command and down my chain of command and around the entire barracks and everywhere as she spread it across the world. And so, uh, the Sergeant major was actually a huge fan of mine because I was one of the only people that wouldn't lie to him. <laughs> and so he wanted to protect me. And so he moved me into the NCO barracks, which is the leader's barracks. I wasn't, um, that's what you'd call E5 level. And if, to give you an idea where I was at, I was E3 about to be promoted to E4, I think. And so for me to be in the, that leadership barracks, because they get their own rooms, was huge. It just, that infuriated everybody. But he put me there because he wanted the leaders, the more senior people, to protect me is how he looked at it. And so I, I went in and out of hiding and, and becoming a hermit, you know, besides going to work and getting food. I would, I would become a hermit for a month when the rumors would fly. It was so bad if I, if I went out to the clubs with my friends. If I danced with one person or talked to one guy, he came up and talked to me the girls would run up to him and just walk to him. Like, Do you know she's got this or that? And I percent time they weren't even right. Um, but then I've got this guy coming to me. Oh, so you've got an STD. Oh, I said, hello to you. Like, I don't need to tell you my life story. When you say hello to me, I wasn't even, I don't even find you attractive. I wasn't even going anywhere with you. So no, you don't need to know, get out of my face. You know, like right. that was literally, I had to introduce myself to everybody. Hi, Mark. I'm Jill. I have an STD. You know, like that. Oh, God. It, it was bad. Yeah. So I, I left Korea thinking I was leaving everything behind. Um, I married my boyfriend at the time. And I'll tell you, I married him because I thought that was the right step in life. Right. So I had this thing in my head, like, I've got the career now. And what's the next step? Like, oh, he said he loved me. So the next step in life is you get married, right? And then the next step is a house. And the next step is a kid. And that's literally how my brain operated. So I won't say uh, I got married for the right reasons, but uh, I married my boyfriend and we got to the new duty station and it was okay for a while until some of the people from my last duty station ended up there and the rumors started falling again. And it just, didn't stop. And I'll tell you, it, it just got so horrible that what I started doing is I decided that if I told everybody the gruesome details of all my life things from like, you made the joke earlier about TMI with, you know, with the bathroom stuff. No, I would tell everybody, Oh yeah, you should have seen the size of my poop today. You know, anything and everything. 
I gave you TMI on everything because here's the deal. I felt like if I give you TMI on everything, right. And somebody comes and tells you a rumor, you're going to look at it and say, oh, she would have already told me that if, if that was the case. And that's how my brain works. So I thought, I'm just going to like lay it all out there, whether it was, you know, pooping or sex or whatever it was. I was just out front with everything. And in my head that was working. Um, my, my marriage was naturally going downhill for multiple reasons. One being, um, a demonic mother-in-law, but, (laughs) um, I ended up in school, uh, to change jobs. So I went from doing intelligence where it was electronic intelligence and dealing with um, like best way to explain it is, is uh, different devices and stuff like that too, which I didn't like at all. I was usually in a dungeon clicking buttons, hated it. And to, um, I went to counterintelligence, which was investigating, um, people and doing uh, source operations and stuff like that and investigating for terrorism, espionage, sabotage, and subversion. So it was very much interviewing people out, you know, meeting people, just very face-to-face with people. And I really, I loved the job. So I went to school for that. And while I was there, my, my husband at the time was also in school for something, but he graduated uh, four months before I did. And he moved to Germany and they were supposed to send me there to phone. Well, um, during that time that he moved to Germany, a month goes by. And in that time, our bank, attra- uh, bank account, because he had just gotten some big bonuses. It was about $40,000 just disappeared out of our bank account. Oh, wow. And he just disappeared. And so I waited a week. And he, he had packed up like he, the, our house was already had a renter in it. I knew my animals and everything was gone. And I didn't hear from him for a week, two weeks. And granted, this was 2007. So it's not like it's as easy as it is today to find somebody, you know, there wasn't like Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, but three weeks, you know, around about the two, three week point, I went to my leadership and I said, Hey, look, here's what's going on. I'm really scared. I don't know where he is. I can't get in contact with them. Can you please help me find out what unit he went to and get in touch with them? And the answer and response I got was they started laughing at me. And they thought I was the psychotic wife and he was taking this opportunity to get a little relaxation time for me. And that's they the, that was their outlook on it. And so I ended up going back to school. My, my um, performance in school started going down because of all the stress. And it was a very, very difficult school. And then it got worse. I, there's all these rumors started coming out about me again. A lot of any man that I talked to, I was sleeping with. And I was trying to figure out, and one day I finally, somebody finally told me, this is actually coming from the leadership. So those people that I went to about my husband were spreading the rumors about me now. And I had two real good friends that I talked to. One was an older guy. He was like 17 years older than I was trusted him real great guy. I could have very adult conversations. Wasn't like, you know, a lot of the younger group that I had to fit in with. Right. 
and I was still doing the fitting in thing. And the other one was a lieutenant. He was younger. Um, and he was National Guard or something like that. And so the two of them are the two that I talked to. Told, you know, I would back and forth with them and I'm, I'm going through this hard time. Well, long story short, I ended up after a mission because we'd have to go out on missions for this course. I ended up, the leaders, the, the instructors put you with partners. You don't choose your partners. They put you with partners. I got partnered with the lieutenant. And he said, hey, um, I got to go pick up all my books so we can write our reports. Not an abnormal request. Uh, now, officers got to stay off post. And so I said, do you mind? Because we had to drive in a government vehicle. He goes, do you mind if we stop by and get that? Sure, no problem. So one thing leads to another. He talks talks to me to go going upstairs with him so that he could do his laundry really quick, grab his books. I said, no problem. Sitting there, he does exactly that, packs up his books, does laundry real quick. And then he comes and sits down next to me and he starts talking to me about everything that's going on. How are you doing with everything? You know, have you heard from your husband yet? Blah, 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 this and that. And again, it, just like the first time, I was very caring, uh, seemed very compassionate about everything. And I said, you know, no, I haven't. And the rumors are getting worse and I don't know what to do, you know. And then, you know, it's the, it's okay. And the rubbing the shoulder and then rubbing the back. And then all of a sudden he's kissing my neck and kissing me. And he grabs my hand and he starts pulling me up. Now, what goes through my mind at this point is in the military, at this point in juncture, there really isn't a program for sexual assault. We had a program for equal opportunity, which covered sexual assault, but it, it wasn't a good program. And in that program, your answer was basically, if you, if you got sexually assaulted and you wanted to report you to report your command is essentially how it worked out. So my mind says, well, I can't report to the command because they're the ones spreading all these rumors about me. And I was being trained to be an investigator. So I understood what kind of position I was in right now. Uh, I also understood that the military at the time didn't really believe enlisted personnel over officers. Officers always got the belief because they're more mature. I don't know what, I, what, what a reason for that was. Uh, but it is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and um, all these things went through my head and I'm just sitting here, you know, spiraling, like I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. Like, there's no way out. Like, what do I do? No, you know? Um, and my mind just spirals and spirals. And then the minute my eyes lock onto his bed, out, collapsed immobility again. I, I don't know how long it was. I don't remember what happens in this particular case. Um, I woke up face down on the bed, um, which was actually just a mattress on the ground and my pants were off. I don't remember if my top was off. I remember looking at him, seeing him and he's getting dressed and thinking, Oh God, no. And I could feel it this time. I could feel what had happened. I knew that he had um, penetrated me. There was a condom I, on the floor. It was, it, it was, you know, all that hitting me. I was just like, I got nothing. Yeah. I got nothing. The only thing I have right now is my military career. That's it. The only thing I have is my military career. Um, I was rising up the ranks really fast and 
I didn't have a, a husband because he's disappeared. Um, I've got all these rumors about me. Nobody's going to believe me. And so I was just like, okay, I like, I gave up. I was like, okay, whatever. I got up. He was trying to be all goo goo gaga with me and, you know, all sweet. And I wasn't having, I was just like, let's get, let's get back. I don't recall even going back. I don't recall any of that. I just remember when I got back to the barracks, the other guy that was, that I talked to the 40 or the one that was 17 years old and I was older he knew something wasn't right. And he was asking me, he's like, what's going on? What's going on? Well, he used to be a police officer. So he like, he pressed me until I gave in and told him what happened. And the two of us talked about it and he goes, and again, this is also before rape kits and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, we call them sane kits, but um, we just realized like with the way the army was going and how investigations work in the military and, and um, my, how people already thought about me, like I didn't stand a chance. And so I didn't report. And he's the only one who knew about it for years, for years. Um, I ended up divorcing that husband and I ended up marrying again, another big mistake. Um, I married this guy because I knew he could never physically or mentally hurt me. You know, he was, he was weaker, um, very weak emotionally, not very much taller than me. He was, he was, you know, not a fighter whatsoever. And so I knew like he could never hurt me. So for in my mind that he was the right one for me. And I, I just went through this, this bad path of, of just, okay, I'm just going to live in contentness, I guess. Just, I wasn't extremely happy. I, I went a year with almost no emotions whatsoever after that, that rape. Um, and I just, I just was like, okay, well, this is what life is. I'm just gonna live it. The only thing I had was the military. And so what did I do? I worked 24 seven. I was the ultimate soldier. So in that aspect, I will tell you, like I, I threw myself into the military because it's the only thing I knew that would be steady. Although later I know, you know, I later learned that the military was part of what put me in that situation, but, and was partially responsible, but ultimately, you know, I, that was all I had in my life. So if I can jump in, first of all, mm-hmm. wow. I'm uh wow. I don't, I don't even know what to say really. <laughs> um, wow. That's just, uh, wow. I, I don't know what to say. Um, I do know that I'd like to hear, so you went through all that yep. horrible stuff that's uh, more or less making tears form in my eyes. Um, and how, how do you recover from all that? I mean, I know you worked 24-7 and that helped you to cope with how did you get to the point of where you are today, yep. which is being, you know, so passionate about speaking out and helping others? What was the turning point? So the turning point for me after going through all that was there's there's two big turning points. Uh, the first one was I'm now with my second husband. I go to a new unit and 
for whatever reason, I guess there's a guy I knew from a unit before rumors start almost immediately. And so I finally, and it wasn't just me, the rumors in this and understand this with intelligence, especially in the CI field that I was in the counterintelligence field I was in really, really small group of people. <laughs> so if you think about it, veterans and are in active duty military is 1% of us citizens, right? Now take that 1% of us citizens and make that really small with the Intel family. So I ran into this guy in the unit and I found out later he's the one who did it, but um, he started all these rumors and the rumors were just bad all around in this unit. They were just horrible. And I talked to this commander. I said, um, because he was, we would chat all the time and he's like, I, I got to stop this, but I just don't know how. And I said, I think I have a way. I said, I don't think people understand what rumors do. And at this point, I had done enough reflection in my life to start to, and, and I'll tell you this, there's always going to be probably uh, here and there self-blame, um, but there had been self at this point it pretty much been self-blame. Like it was my fault because I, I, I didn't have scratch marks or bruises or anything. So in my mind, I didn't fight back and, and all that kind of stuff. And for a tough girl like me, how could I not fight back, you know? And so I really blame myself for a lot of it until I started really, after going through the training that I went through as an investigator, I started really like looking at life differently. And I started looking at my past and my past situations. And one of the things I looked at was, you know, what do these rumors do to me? And it made me realize that rumors set a tone, right? So people, a lot of people say, oh, sticks and stones, they break your bones, right? Words will never hurt you. And it's not so much the fact that it has directly on me. But what it did is it, those rumors made me a target. Very specifically for the second one, a little bit for the first one, for the second rape, those rumors made me a target. Because if you look at the rumors came from the leadership, right? So the leadership isn't going to believe me. And that's who my rapist you know, knew I had to report to. Character-wise, you know, you bring in character witnesses. Everybody thought I was a slut, you know. So, oh, she probably just wanted it and then changed her mind. That's a lot of that's that's a thought process that goes through a lot of people's heads with rape. And um, so it made me a target because one, who was doing it, but also two, it sets a tone for the unit. You know, it means if people aren't stopping rumors and they're only perpetuating them, then you also, a, a, a perpetrator also knows that the likelihood that those people will stand up for you is going to be very low. Um, so knowing that nobody really stood up for anybody, knowing that the leadership were the ones saying that about me, knowing that I, you know, I had this bad character, I was the perfect target. I really was. And so I started off a class and I started off with, so who thinks, you know, who thinks rumors, you know, don't mean anything. And I let everybody discuss and then it's okay. 
let me break something down for you. And I, I, I didn't go into detail like I have with you, but I, I broke down and said, this is how I got raped. And the room went freaking silent. Like you hear pins drop. I got split feelings on it. I had some command, because a lot of command members are really sensitive, you know, and they didn't like, you can't talk about that. And like, wait, they don't learn. But what I ended up having after doing this big class is I had a lot of people come up to me and say, you know what? I'm not the one who started the rumor, but I didn't stop it. And I'm sorry for that. And I had other people apologizing to each other. So after one class, I had this whole entire unit of people coming together and apologizing to me and to other people and being like, I'm sorry. And, and for a while, I won't say forever, the rumors did stop. And that one class, I felt this incredible power come back to me. This power I hadn't had for a long time because he took it from me, right? I started to feel that come back to me. And so when I got the opportunity, I started stepping out of my shell a little bit more and I would teach a little bit more and I would go into a little bit more detail. And I would, and the more I did it, the more I also self-reflected on me. And so that started it. And the second thing that got me to where I am um, is a little funnier. (laughs) I, with my current husband now, um, I was married to my second husband, but I was deployed with my now husband and we were really good friends. And he, you know, I told him my story and he said, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm saying it's your fault. I really don't. He goes, and this is kind of what was hinting at earlier on in our conversation. He said, but if, if you didn't talk the way you did, he said, you might not be as much of a target for a perpetrator. Because the rumors would go down if I didn't talk dirty, one. Two, people wouldn't think that I would be easy or something like that. Right. Which is often come around. And generally speaking, people would treat me more professionally. Well, I was pissed. I flipped the table. I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> Guys can talk about whatever the hell they want. They talk about sex and this and that girls can't. That's so sexist. Right. Yeah. I was pissed. <laughs> and so, uh, a year goes by, I go through divorce and I, I go back to my friend and I tell him, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove you wrong because I was about to move to a new duty station where I was going to get to start new again, right? And so I said, I'm going to go to this new duty station and I'm not going to talk about sex at all. I'm going to talk. I'm only going to be professional at the workplace and even out of the workplace, I'm going to limit the kind of things that I joke about, right? And I'm going to prove to you that nothing will change. And so I go to this new unit and I do exactly that. And I got pre-treated so professionally. The rumors ceased to exist. There was only like a little, little bitty bit. Um, the consistent people trying to quote unquote get in my pants stopped. I, so either I got really ugly in this amount of time or, <laughs> um, you know, I had to do with that. And I just start, I started seeing this like people. And the other thing was, around me, people didn't talk about that kind of stuff. So they weren't talking about each other that way either. And it was this huge change. And I'll tell you, that's probably the only time my current husband's ever been right. Um, but I, I had to call him and tell him, you know, Hey, and again, that, that made me look, take a look back at, at 
where I came from. And I'm, again, I'm not going to say that it's my fault because it's not my fault. It's the rapist's fault. However, I do believe that we all play a part in everything that happens to us. And this kind of gets into where I am now for two different things. One, through all of this and going back and looking at, at everything that I've been through and back at my life and why I made certain decisions like marrying my second husband because I was trying to be safe um, to how my the way I talked played a role to how rumors play a role to all of this uh, to the collapsed immobility because a lot of people think oh well when you get raped you're gonna fight right if you didn't fight then you must have won it right so all these things made me realize that I needed to talk. I needed to get out to the world and teach people through my, my personal experience. Cause when I started talking to people about a real thing and I'm in front of you, like you hearing my story is so much different than from me being say a teacher saying, saying, Hey, I know this girl, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Right. It's different when you're seeing the person in front of you, it's a whole nother story. Right. Right. And so I also developed this huge healing inside from it. Like I just, the more I taught, the more I healed. And I thought, you know what? One, if I teach first responders, the people that respond to sexual assault victims first, if I teach them how to, to handle the victims, if I, if I teach victims that there is hope on the other side. And if I help get all these preconceived notions about what sexual assault and rape is, I, I could do a world of difference for the world, you know, for the world and possible future victims. Um, and so that's what got me to speaking. And then for the coaching side, what I realized, um, and I learned more about it in my coaching school is Everything we're trying to conquer and get past is based on habits. My habit was, was talking the way I was talking. And when we want to move to a new goal or something like that, we have to learn how to, it's only going to be temporary if we just make a small little change for a while, right? Like a diet, you know, if we go on a diet for 20 days, we'll lose some pounds, but guess what? We'll probably grain it back, right? If you really want lasting change, you have to change your habits, and I thought, I'm getting out of the military. This is about a year before I was getting out of the military. And I said, I still want to help people. And what better way to do it than to coach and to speak about what I've been through. So that's how everything, I know that's a long story about how I got there, but that's how I got, I got to that. Wow. I, I'm still tearing up from everything. I'm sorry, I didn't want you to cry. No, hey, I, hey, no crying here, just tearing up. But uh, wow, I mean, I'm, I'm just absolutely so sorry about what you went through, and I mean, just incredible strength and resilience on your part to uh, be where you're at today, which is obviously a much, much better place. And yeah. I just want to say that while you may have acted a certain way in your situations, there's, you know, there's 
boundaries and lines that I think we all know we can't cross. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I think uh, some of these people, whether they were the the ones who assaulted you or the ones that were, you know, outcasting you, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the rivalry stuff is just, yeah. you know, there, there's just lines that you can't cross. And it's such a shame that these things wind up happening. And I mean, you know, I, while I certainly haven't had some of the same experiences per se that you've had, I know that I do, you know, I've, I've had, I've been like outcasted and, you know, just for me being who I am. And I mean, I, I hope that stories like yours is just so powerful that uh, will not only help people who've gone through literally the same things, but maybe even something kind of similar or just, you know, just anybody. I hope that this conversation will help people and I hope that this is a good uh, jump start. I mean, I know your goal is to become a public speaker, which I shouldn't even say to become because you've done it, but uh I know with COVID happening and everything else, I mean, yeah. where do you stand with all that? Well, I was really excited because I actually had uh, a gig to talk about it. I was actually going to do a uh, code uh, training with a, a psychiatrist uh, in front of over 500 um, victim advocates with big organization and then COVID hit. <laughs> right, it says going out, and so that and a couple other um, opportunities I had lined up got canceled, and I had to learn then at that point to kind of turn my attention to the web <laughs> and trying to do things on the web. So trying, I'm trying to schedule speaking opportunities, and so the people I'm targeting right now are a lot of the the victim advocates. Um, they have to go through a certain amount of training every two years anyway. Um, and so I'm trying to provide a lot of that training because I feel like I used to be what they call a sexual assault response coordinator. So I was in charge of all the victim advocates and I've seen how victim advocates, not intentionally, you know, if you don't know what you're dealing with and you don't, and you're just hearing stories from a schoolhouse, you don't truly know how to respond to the victims. And, and sometimes that can be very detrimental when you all of a sudden get your first case and you go meet the victim and you make some kind of big mistake. Um, so my goal right now is to, is to do a lot of training with them. Um, I'm doing a pre-recorded training that I'm creating that will just be a course that people can buy. So that's what I've, I've turned to as well. And I'm looking to start a podcast as well uh, called 50 Shades of Rape with the intent of blowing out of the water, all these preconceived notions of rape. So getting guys, girls, young people, old people, you know, um, every different lifestyle to explain the different things that they went through and, and how their situation went, went on, you know, because like I said, it's, it's different for everybody. For me, I had collapsed immobility. 
There's a lot of people that fight. There's a lot of people, you know, that are, it's a drinking situation. Um, you know, so it's, I want people to understand that that typical TV version of rape that, that the media throws in our face and down our throats is, is actually not the typical rape. You know what I mean? Um, because I feel like the more that that's out there, the more people, one can understand the threats right here. It's right here, you know, and it's not just to you, but, oh, by the way, I was, I was the, here's the question for you. When, when September 11th happened, were you one of those people? Cause almost everybody I've talked to are one of these people. Were you one of those people like, crap, nobody could take down my plane. I would have fought them. Uh, no, I was not one of those people. I don't know what the heck I would have done. Would have done. I I honestly don't know what I would have done. In all my bravado, I will tell you, ninety percent of the military people and and people that I know have always said, "Oh, I would have fought back and blah 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 and this and that." But I'll tell you, back when I was eighteen, I would have told you, "There's no way." I would have been raped. There's no way anybody could ever rape me because I would fight him back and I would do this and I would do that. And then what happened? My, my brain said, no, 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 no. We can't, we can't comprehend this right now. So I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to put you in a black hole. Right. And, and it's what we all have different ways of coping. That just happens to be how my brain handled that particular situation. Um, and it's not every time I have stopped other numerous attempts. Um, but in those two, two uh, circumstances, I was going through a lot of emotional things. And I think that's kind of why I was able to. But we always have this idea that, oh, well, this is how I would respond to this situation. And people need to know, like, we all said it couldn't happen to us. Right. All, almost all victims at some point have said that can never happen to me. And so I want people to understand, like, I don't want you to live in fear, but I want you to understand how, how it can come to be, what kind of people are out there. It's not all strangers in a dark alley, you know, for mine, they were all friends, people close to me. Um, so that's, that's my, my goal for the, the podcast. Um, and then coaching and just, uh, uh, I know some of your other um, people that you've had on the show have said the same thing. COVID hit and everybody wants to be a coach. So it's a very difficult <laughs> um, business to be in right now. But I really, I'm still there. I just, it doesn't matter what it is. I've helped, I've helped a client through um, changing jobs uh, to start a new career. I've helped another uh, client through hoarding. Um, I've helped people through weight loss. So, it, it, I mean, I just want to help people, honestly, what it comes down to. But I I know now we have to kind of reach out because as much as even with, you know, uh, if you're, if you're going to get the shot or not, or, you know, if you're staying back and, and staying away from people and wearing the mask, at some point, like, we're going to go back to a new norm, whatever that is but people have gotten so used to working on this thing. This is the way of the future. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. So this is my goal. 
Yeah, that's definitely my goal. And I have resisted the urge to become a coach. I know that. I think everybody who is uh, remotely like on, you know, social media or, you know, going through something, I guess all everybody's going through something right now. But mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people have made that decision to make that transition. And I mean, for me, for all I know, I could probably be a very good coach, but I almost feel like doing something like this is probably more up my alley and how I want to help people at this point in my life. And uh, I do want to come back before we talk about how everybody can uh, contact you. I do want to say, thinking about your 9-11 question, I think I probably would have thought about it for too long. And that would have been me because I'm not a man of action. I'm a man of like, all right, well, let's think it over a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not a situation that you think it over. Like you got to know and I -hmm. think you got to go for it. But just me as a person, I probably would have just been like, well, I'm not so sure, you know, about taking action here or not. Maybe somebody else should take action. So, yeah. But at the same <laughs> if you're in that situation, you probably even sitting here today, you're probably sitting here and thinking like, oh, well, I, there's no chance in hell that I'd ever be in a situation like that. It's just not something we, you know, we think about. Yet no. at the same time, there's thousands of victims of, of thousands of different things from theft to, you know, to rape, to abuse, to all these different things. And most people every single time, you know, say, oh, that can never happen to me. Well, and that's it's just like this pandemic. I never in a million years mm-hmm. thought that such a horrible pandemic would happen and affect my life and everybody else's like it has. But here we are. So mm-hmm. um, with all that being said, I think we're working on a 90 minute episode here. So yeah we uh i knew i knew all the, <laughs> we talked about it <laughs> i i knew the two times that we talked i'm like this is gonna be a long one it's gonna be a good long one so well i hope that's okay <laughs> no it's totally fine i i actually wish we had more time to talk because i feel like i could talk all day but uh i would like to give you the opportunity just to talk about how uh, somebody who needs your services can get in touch with you. Well, um, if you're interested in coaching, I um, can be found on Facebook under Harmonizing Habits, Health and Life Coaching, as well as on LinkedIn under Jillian Weber. Um, those are my two main platforms. Um, I have an email for the coaching, which is uh, Jillian, which is J-I-L-L-I-A-N dot Weber, W-E-B-B-E-R at uh, one, two, three at gmail.com. I spelled it out for you because I know you're big on that. I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, those are my main, my main points of contact. Um, you know, I'm, whether it's speaking, I can do 
virtual or in person. Um, if it's a travel thing, you know, I can probably work that out too, depending on travel bans and movements. But, um, you know, as you're showing right now, Zoom is an amazing capability right now. So um, I really appreciate being able to come out and talk um, on here. And, you know, you talked about, um, you know, you looking at being a coach, but what you're doing right now when you interview all of us and getting into all these stories, because I've listened to a, a, a number of your podcasts, is you're giving all of us the opportunity to, if you know Dean Graciosi, he always has a saying, it's turn your mess into a message. And it goes back to what I told you in the beginning. I don't like learning lessons on my own if I don't have to. If I can learn from watching other people, I'd prefer it. And you're giving us a platform to share a message so that other people don't necessarily have to um, learn the hard way. Or if they are in the middle of a similar thing, that they can kind of see what helped us out and, and get through it. So uh, what you're doing is incredibly important. Well, I mean... The pleasure is all mine, you know, just uh, the the whole goal of this podcast. Obviously, I tell everybody I talk to on the initial call, career transition, entrepreneurship. I want to talk about your story, but it's just for me meeting such a diverse uh, array of people and just having the opportunity to, you know, you're giving me the opportunity to kind of listen in and be a part of your story. And, you know, that's, that's a trust that, you know, that's not something that you can just get anywhere. And yeah. I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you're trusting me to listen, especially to such a heavy, deep, story like yours and I mean you know I should be thanking all of you for taking the time to you know open up and you know tell me your story that's amazing like you don't have to do that but you do it and I mean I could ramble on and make this a two-hour episode but um, you know I just feel really thankful and privileged to be where I'm at with this and it's just incredible so uh with all that being said one final question okay. a lighter note all that time that you worked at the golf ranges did you have yeah. actually ever play golf yes actually um I was on the golf team uh, in high school and I was initially going to do softball and I had this uh, PE coach that said, no, you come play golf with me. Uh, everybody plays you know, softball. And so I ended up doing it. I loved it um, until I got a little bit too competitive and nasty. And then I stepped back from, from playing it because I liked it for fun. But I did actually go to state one year. I did not do well, but I made state and I went to state. So that's my claim to fame for golf. So now I, I'll go every once in a while and just have some fun. But yes, I do play golf. I I had that in my back pocket to ask because I'm like, man, <laughs> I, I have to ask if you actually played because you were very immersed in it. And I know that I'll go to Top Golf and I'll 
kick the ball around a little bit, but I've never played on an actual course. So that's actually a goal of mine to actually get out and play yeah. for real and get some actual, uh, I guess, schooling on it. I guess yeah. uh, once the pandemic is pretty much over, that's something I'd like to do. But uh, putting that aside, Julian Weber, thank you so much for opening up and sharing your story. And thanks a lot for me. You know, I certainly didn't fall or cry, but it takes a lot for me just to get teary-eyed. And uh, I knew just from the last conversation we had, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble because uh, you were making me teary-eyed even then. So, uh, Jillian, you're like an incredible person, yeah. very, very strong and resilient. And I wish you nothing but the best with everything you're doing. And you can come back to Mark My Words anytime. And maybe we'll get you on for a live episode sometime. We'll find something to talk about. But, uh, for now, thank you for today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. All right. Well, that is all the time we have and then some for today's Mark My Words. I'm Mark Schmidt. This was Jillian Weber. Thank you very much. And I'll be back with a new episode very soon. Bye. Bye.